Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Doreen Stokes lives outside of Plains, Montana. She has a reforestation business that has run for the past 30 years. She plants trees all over the Pacific Northwest, and she also spends a lot of time in Africa. She leads safaris in Tanzania and is passionate about the wildlife and people in Tanzania, especially the elephants and rhinos. She is passionate about surfing, tree planting, and Africa. Her first trip to Africa was in 1984. She has returned 10 different times with a focus on Kenya, Tanzania, and Rwanda. Later on, we're going to talk about a project where she is getting water for a school of the Maasai tribe. Yeah, it's a Maasai school in Arusha. Before we jump into your interview, I want to talk about that project because you're actually doing that right now. I am. Yes, and thanks for having me. So I have a project that I'm trying to bring water to a Maasai school outside of Arusha in Losira, Tanzania. And I've been working with this school for nearly 12 years now, since its inception, since they were teaching underneath a tree, turned into one building, 24 students, and now it has up to 600. So water has always been an issue for them, and I've tried in the past to fix lines, etc., and Finally, I came to the conclusion that maybe I should drill a well there. So I have this project on GoFundMe. It's called Drill a Well for Maasai Children. However, I was just there in May, did a little work on fixing the two tanks that are there, did work on fixing the gutters that feed the tanks and the lines that feed the tanks. And with a group of other people, we decided that it's a really dry, arid area and that sinking $16,000 into a well may just come up dry and it's taken me too long to raise the money, mm-hmm. so I don't want to do that. But we're going to put in two more 50,000-gallon tanks, and that will hold them over from one wet season to the other wet season. Doreen Stokes is definitely making a change in Africa as well as the Northwest. I really look forward to talking to you more about the projects that you're working on in East Africa. But before we do that, Doreen, can you tell us about your childhood? So where did you grow up, and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in Belleville, New Jersey, and my family had a tavern business called Binky's Tavern, and I lived on top of it for 19 years before I went away to college. In fact, my bed was right above the jukebox, (laughs) which really I couldn't go to sleep after that unless I had music playing for years and years. And uh, I was lucky. I had a great mom and dad. They liked to go places, do things. They were fun-loving. And so we, we ventured out. We did spent quite a bit of time in the Pocono Mountains where I would say I learned to swim there in the river. And I guess when I was eight, my mom was a little reluctant to leave me there with friends. And she said, I'll leave you here if you could swim across that river and back. <laughs> so she got in a rowboat and, of course, rowed next to me. And I swam across and back. And she said, OK, you're on your own now. And after that, I started going places with relatives and friends because I was an only child and uh, it was easy for them to just pick me up and take me places. So I think that 
was a great start in my adventures. Also, we always went to the Jersey Shore. Mm-hmm. And my uncle, my Uncle Johnny, taught me He taught me about the sea. He taught me how to be in the ocean. He taught me about the tides, the riptides, the currents. And eventually, at a young age, I started surfing. And I think that was key to my adventures for up until today, up until today. I've been up and down the East Coast surfing, surfed in Puerto Rico, eventually left New Jersey because at that time the water was just filthy. And my partner and I said, that's it. We're out of here. Let's go to the West Coast and surf. So we moved to Oregon. And we surfed there for years and up and down the West Coast and Hawaii and Mexico and Costa Rica, which is my my love for surfing there. It's great. So it, it just... I think one thing led to another. Once I got to the West Coast, I was looking for a job, didn't really have any money, and tree planters came by a house. I lived way out in the country. A logging company had logged a lot of the trees, which made me really sad. I really just didn't understand it at the time that it was a crop, like a farm crop, a large farm crop that takes a long time to grow. So they were planting in my valley, and I needed a job, I went outside and asked the foreman if he would hire me. And he said, this job is way too hard for girls, for women. I I just don't think I can hire you. And I said, well, you know, that's a little sexist. Why why don't you give me a try and then see what happens? So he said, okay, he did. And that was the probably the hardest thing I've ever done that first week. I mean, it was it was hell on your body. It was really hard physical labor. After a week, though, your body starts to get used to things, and I just took to it. Yeah. And I started working for him and for other companies and co-ops, and eventually I I said, you know, I, I think I can do what uh, what they're doing. So I started my own company. Beautiful. Doreen, I'd like to talk to you about your relationship with trees and the importance of planting trees. If you were to, say, be listening to this show and you're inspired to plant a tree, how much of a change just planting one tree a year, perhaps on your birthday, can make globally? Just think about if everybody planted, took it to themselves to plant one tree for themselves on their birthday. I mean, just think how many trees that would be. We all know that deforestation is a big problem all over the world. So wherever you plant a tree is going to be it's going to be good. It's going to be going to give you that feeling of nurture. It's going to give you the feeling of being close to nature. It's really a wonderful thing. I I have to say that all that time in the running a tree planting company, and I've really been responsible for millions and millions of trees going in the ground. It was really all for the money. It's a crop, and I was really looking for something more personal than that. One time we planted for the fish and wildlife outside of Wisdom, and we planted willow trees right in the creek bottom. And that was for the Arctic grayling that was endangered, and they spawn in the roots of the willow trees, and the ranchers had let their cows go right up into the the banks, and it had wrecked the banks and wrecked the willows. So that felt good. We put in about 30,000 willow trees and sticks, really. And, and that, was, that made me feel good, like it was a good purpose. So actually, once I started going to Africa, 
I incorporated tree planting into my safaris. It was really important to me. That started from, I was on a Savannah workshop at one point, and there were quite a few people on that workshop, and part of it was planting a tree in Africa. And I had already planted so many trees in my life, but still, it felt really good for me to plant one in Africa. And honestly, it was a highlight of almost everybody on that trip was planting a tree. And I thought, wow, you know, what we could do here is when, when we go on safari, we could stop somewhere and find a woman's group or school or some area where we can plant trees on safari. And the tourists can pay, pay to do it. It doesn't cost much, but people can't afford it. So the tourists pay, and we plant trees. And, and one year I took, 20, I took 10 students from the, excuse me, 10 students and Gary Kerr from the university to Tanzania. And we planted trees for three days. One was on an elephant orphanage, proposed elephant orphanage. The other was at the Maasai school, so that's two days. And the third day was a watershed where my son and I had done a water project three months prior to that. There was a lot of deforestation up by the source, and so we decided that that would be a good place up there to reforest, and so we planted a day there in the watershed. That... That was fulfilling. That fulfilled me with my tree planting desires. Doreen, let's get right to it. If someone were to be inspired to plant a tree as soon as the ground softens, can you guide someone to how they might set themselves up to plant a tree every year on their birthday? Well, I think you have to decide what kind of tree is best for your area and what kind of tree you like. You know, what would you like to have? Um, Or there's fast-growing trees, there's slow-growing trees, there's shade trees, there's fruit trees, and there's ornamental trees. So I would choose a spot and try to figure out what would best grow there and what is to your liking. I would prepare the spot, and you're going to dig a pretty good size hole, of course, much deeper than you think you would need. You can put some fertilizer down in the bottom, some natural fertilizer. You could use some cow dung. You could use fish guts, lots of different things that you can use. And, um, and, and buy a tree and set it in there and really care for it. You know, you're going to have to watch it. You're going to have to make sure that it has enough water. You know, our seasons can vary. We get a lot of drought here sometimes, so in the summer. You just take good care of it. That reminds me, Doreen, growing up, I had a semi-traumatic childhood in terms of losing animals quite often uh, on a farm. And oh, every time yes. we lost an animal, we buried it and planted a tree above Mm -hmm. their grave. Exactly. I mean, it could be a pet, you know, any kind of, that's exactly true. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. I like that. Well, that is the voice of Doreen Stokes. She lives outside of Plains, Montana, and has had a reforestation business for over 30 years, planting trees all over the Pacific Northwest, as well as Africa. She leads safaris in Tanzania and is passionate about the wildlife and people in that country, especially the elephants and rhinos. Doreen, Let's talk a little bit more about trees before we get into culture and, um, and mm-hmm. wildlife in Africa. You first went to Africa in 1984. Can you tell us a little bit more about the tree planting in Africa that you're doing? It started at a Savannah workshop, and that was where the idea came from. The next time I went to Africa and, let's see, coerced my husband and my son, who was nine at the time, we spent about six weeks looking for a place to actually do the project where we could take tourists by and 
and plant trees for a women's group, or that's what we ended up finding was a women's group. We traveled around Savo in Kenya. Mm-hmm. That's where we ended up doing that. When I decided to lead safari, which is a dream job, <laughs> and I went back to Tanzania, and that's where I like to lead safaris now. I'm really familiar with the area and the people there. And I met Pratik Patel. I think that you've interviewed him before. And he and I started working together on the project at the Messi School. He donated the land for them, started to build one building, and we started to plant trees right at the inception. Before there was even doors and windows and a roof on top of the the building, we started planting trees there. So every time I go back now, that's what we stop and we do. We stop at the school and we plant trees there. The um, last time I went, I hadn't been in a couple years, and I was ecstatic. I jumped out of the car. The trees were so big. It was so fun to see them. I was just dancing around and like a crazy woman. I was so excited about the trees. We plant all different kinds of trees there. There is acacia trees. There are fig trees. We plant our token baibab tree, lucena, moringa, there's the fever tree, the African olive. And before we plant them, we go to a nursery in Mtawambo. And my clients and I, we, we pick out the trees. Of course, we have help with what trees will grow best in that area. And so I have them get out, and we go through the nursery, and we pick out the trees, bring them back to the school. And we plant them with the kids, the kids and the teachers, and, and they just love it. Awesome. It's a great experience. I, In <clears throat> fact... What I like to do on safari, it's just really fun. I like to do highlights of the day because it's so interesting. Everybody experiences pretty much the same thing, but everyone will have a different highlight mm-hmm. for them for that day. And in the end, I do a highlight of the whole, what was your best part of the whole trip? And I looked at those yesterday, and all the people, all of them said it was planting trees at the Maasai School. So... We give an experience that not a lot of other groups will give. I love it, Doreen. It's a different way to travel as well. When you start talking about it and saying like tourists having the opportunity to plant trees and make a change and give back to the cultures that give mm-hmm. so much to them when they're traveling. Yeah, absolutely. I, I try to do about 30% culture on my trip. So we'll go and visit other tribes as well and go to an orphanage, just do whatever we can to try to give back. And, and meeting the local people is an absolute highlight mm-hmm. for my clients. It's a different perspective, something that you might take note of if you're listening. When you're traveling to a country, maybe instead of spending so much time on what hotel you're going to stay at and where you're going to rent your car, you know, what can you do to give back to the cultures in that area? And it could be as simple as planting a tree, which doesn't take that long, does it, Doreen? Uh, no. Can you tell us about how long it takes to plant one tree versus, you know, 10 or you said 30,000 willows? <laughs> 30,000 willows. That took us about 10 days. I guess it was three of us. Okay, so 10 days for 30,000. That's a lot. But <laughs> That's a lot. When you do reforestation, the average now, well, anywhere from 500 to 1,000 trees a day is what people plant when you're reforesting. It's actually a pretty complicated business. But getting back to one tree. Yeah, one tree, simple. One tree, simple, is, I mean, it can take you 15, 20 minutes. That's it. That's awesome. It is. It's, it's, it, that would be a great thing. I really love that idea. I do, too. I think we need to promote that. I, I, yeah. Everybody on their birthday just plant one tree mm-hmm. worldwide. Mm-hmm. You can get, I know some people can't get at a tree, but 
Maybe you could get out a sapling. You could dig it up from your neighbor. Maybe that's going to be my new sign-off for the trail less traveled. Instead of get outside and shred the gnar, I'm going to say get outside and plant a tree. That's it. Every year on your birthday. I love it. (laughs) I love it. Well, when we come back, I'm going to talk to Doreen a little bit more about the culture and the animals in Tanzania, in particular the elephants and the rhinos. You're on the trail less traveled, and it's time for a song. So, Doreen, can you share a song with us that reminds you of your early childhood adventures? I'm going to say Good Vibrations from the Beach Boys because it reminds me of surfing growing up. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled. We are recording at the Missoula Broadcasting Company here in Missoula, and I'm speaking with Doreen Stokes. She drove here today from Plains, Montana, and she has been running a reforestation business for over 30 years, planting trees in the Pacific Northwest as well as Africa. She leads safari in Tanzania and is passionate about the wildlife and people of East Africa, especially the rhinos and elephants. Her first visit to Africa was in 1984, and that's when she fell in love with Mama Africa. So Doreen, before we jump into the culture and the animals on that continent, can you tell us about your first encounter with Africa stepping off the plane in 1984 and and why you fell in love? Oh boy, I'll tell you, it was just amazing. I would say that the smells hit you first when you come off the plane. And it's different. It's different than any place that you've been. It's just a combination of, of smoke and greenery and, and I, I just it's a musky smell and it was great. The weather was the temperature was perfect and it didn't take long at all to fall in love with the landscapes and the people and the wildlife. So much so that when my three week safari was up, I couldn't leave. Actually I was in Rwanda at the time. It was the time of um not even texts. It was um not even what was it? It was um, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> you know, um, Morse code. No, <laughs> after Morse code, but telegrams. Oh, it was telegrams. telegrams. I telegrammed my mother and said, I'm going to stay longer. I'm going to travel back to Arusha with this group. Everybody else left from Rwanda, so I was just going back with the drivers. And um, can you send me a little money? So she sent me a little bit more money, and I stayed for three more weeks on my own. It was a great adventure. I, when I got back to Arusha, I went up to the Omotoni Forestry Institute and got acquainted with them, and they took me out on their logging projects and any of the projects that they had that they were planting trees, and that kind of made me feel like I could come back here and I could, I could do something good mm-hmm. and became a passion. Beautiful. And now you lead safari in Tanzania, and part of that safari is planting trees. I'd like to talk about the culture. I'd like to talk about the people and the tribes. One of the tribes, of course, is the Maasai tribe, and they are the ones that are just stately. They're colorful. They're kind. They're the warriors, but I don't get that feeling from them when I'm around there. I feel like if I was in trouble and I was alone there— that I could turn to them and they would be helpful to me. The Tanzanians in general have such a kind nature. They are super friendly people. And one of the things about Tanzania and why I think everybody gets along so well is that the first president, when they got independence, he decided that we're all Tanzanians. We are not going to be tribal here. You can keep your tribes. We want everybody to keep their independent tribal customs 
but you can marry intertribal if you want to. And so consequently, people got along, and people do intermarry. There's, there's 127 different tribes there. You know, all these little tribes, mm-hmm. and, and everybody gets along. It's, it's, a, it's a friendly, friendly country. The Maasai are, are very proud. There's a whole story behind the Maasai, and it's a very long story. If you come on safari, one of my Maasai drivers, guides, will tell you the story, and, and it's, it's pretty interesting. We like to go to one of their villages. We can roast a goat with them if we want to. We can dance with them. We can sing with them. They'll show us where they live, how they live, how they milk their go- their um, cows. So that's a one tribe. And I feel like even though we're stepping up to give them a better education or give them, give them education at all, which they truly want, I don't think they're going to change all that much. They are really, really proud of their culture. There's one. We also go and we see the Hadzapi. And the Hadzapi are, I think they're beyond primitive. The Hadzapi are cavemen. They literally live in caves and in these little grass huts that don't in any way keep the weather out. They are hunters and gatherers, so we get to go on a hunt with them, and we get to gather with the women. They shoot with bows and arrows. That is that is what they do. And you just can't believe they, they almost look like a large toy. Like, how could they be so accurate with this? Mm-hmm. But they're great. And I don't, I don't see them changing either. They speak a click language. There's only about 800 of them left. And they're in a certain area. There's, they're in an area, actually, where these baobab trees are. There's a forest of them. They're huge. They're magical. They're, it's just amazing. And for one thing, it's a very, very interesting tree. It's a hollow tree. And it's very porous, so it's a survival tree for the elephants. They'll tusk into that tree and make a big opening, and they'll, they'll extract water from it. You know, there'll be little pockets in there. So it's a tree that can save them in dry times. It's also a tree that, in bad times, poachers, for a long time, the powers that be could not figure out where the poachers were. You know, this is before modern equipment. And they would hear that they were in the area. They would fly over. They couldn't find them. Where did they go? Well, these trees are so big, and they're hollow. So you get a hole in there, and they would hide out inside the baobab trees with the tusks and get away with it until they caught on to that. They also produce a fruit that are good for wildlife and, and for people, kind of called the upside-down tree just because that's the way they look. And there's many different species of baobabs, right, all over the there's, all over Africa, and particularly Madagascar. Or yeah, there's a different there's a different species I think in Madagascar. Yeah, they're really tall. These ones here are uh, kind of short and squatty. I love those. Are my favorite. Yeah, I mean it'll take fifteen twenty people sometimes to hand in hand to wrap around one tree. You said that the Hadzapi live in an area where there's a bunch of ancient baobab trees. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a magical place. You just planted a seed in my mind that I would love to go and meditate there. (laughs) So why don't the Hadzapi live inside the trees as well? Do critters and homo sapiens make those trees their home? Is there any particular reason why they wouldn't? I think that they probably do. Mm -hmm. I think that they do spend time inside those trees. Beautiful. Yeah. We went on a a hunt and a gather one one of the trips and... We came to this tree, and it had a little a baobab tree, and it had just a hole in it about the size of a dinner plate. And it had a little gourd on the side of it. And the guy who was um, the hunter 
he took that gourd and he reached in that hole and and there was water in there and he took a made a had a cup of, of water and took a drink like that was their their local little water source wow. so then there's the datoga that are the neighboring tribe to the hadzapi the datoga are the smithies and they will take ore from rocks and they'll melt it down and they make the arrowheads for the Hadzapi, and the Hadzapi trade them wild honey for these arrowheads. So when I go, I like to bring some brass fittings, things of that nature, old brass fittings, and um, take them to the, the toga, and they will, in front of us, transform that into an arrowhead in a little pit with a goatskin bellows. Really fun to watch them do that. This time when I went into Tanzania, I took it in my, I had it in my luggage, and it was kind of heavy, this bag with this parts in it. And they pulled me over, and they said, okay, open it up, and what is this? And I said, well, you have a tribe that's not too far outside of Arusha. And I told them the story and that I was bringing it to them. And he said, that's a very good idea. Zipped it up and sent me on my way. <laughs> Sometimes I get a little bit concerned about Education. Everybody wants to be educated. And so these tribes have, I mean, they have far more wealth in, in what they know naturally than we do. Mm-hmm. And I have a little bit of, you know, ups and downs about that, but I do think that education is important to them, and I don't feel like they are, it's going to change their existence and change their lives that much from their culture. When Pratik built this school, he went to the Maasai and he said, I want to build you a school. And the chief said, our boys will really like that. And Pratik said, you don't understand. I will not build this school unless you promise me that you will have 50% females as well. So that's a nice change, too. I think they're getting more and more respect for females everywhere. Since we're talking about Africa and we're talking a little bit about the safari that you lead in Tanzania, can you tell us a little bit more, just in case someone listening might be interested in joining you? You do 30% culture. You visit with the Maasai, the the Toga, and the Hadzapi tribes. Everything from being able to hunt with the Hadzapi to being able to see how the Toga make their arrowheads. I'd like to just learn a little bit more about what safari is because... That is a pretty common word internationally, but many people don't actually know what safari is. It's, you're going out for more than a day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you head out for, well, our, my safari um, is about two weeks. You can do it in less time, but honestly, there is so much to see and so much to do. So you arrive, everything is taken care for you. We try to go to lodges, if we're saying in a lodge that's built with local materials, so that's nice. The food is wonderful. It's organic. There's not any money in that country for pesticides and herbicides. So a lot of the work is done manually, and the food is very, very good. Different, but very good. The uh, accommodations are real nice. You're always comfortable. The flowers around the lodges are gorgeous. When we go into the Serengeti, I like to camp because... You can't hear the African wild, even when you're in a lodge. And these, you know, lodges are light. The walls are light, but you can't hear the African night. And you do want to hear it. You want to wake up in the morning and say, 
what was that, you know, or I, I think that was a zebra. No, no, the, the, the guides will tell you exactly what it is. But first, they'll want you to be guessing and so they can laugh at you a little bit. So um, camping, of course, we have a campfire every night and you're under the stars, the African stars. The sky is just amazing, just amazing. I mean, I live out in the country here in Montana where there are no lights and I can look up at the sky sometime and just be enthralled. But the skies in Africa, it's, it's many more times that. If you're well taken care of on safari, you'll see different tribes. We'll try to go to an orphanage. I like to bring them something when we go there. Like last year, we brought them toothbrushes for the kids, new toothbrushes. And whatever they may need. They may need oil. They may need soap to clean their clothes. They might need line for clothesline. But I try to find out what will be good, and we will bring that to them. Before you move on, many people who are visiting Africa have asked me what they can bring. So can you share a couple more ideas of what you might bring and also how someone might research what schools or kids are in need of when traveling to certain parts of Africa? Yeah, I wouldn't bring pens because when they're done, they're done in their trash. I would bring pencils. Pencils are always a good thing. You can get paper and that type of stuff in Arusha, so you can support the local economy by going and shopping there first. But we do like to bring soccer balls because it's a, it usually uh, you will see somebody with just a big ball of cloth with elastic bands. Yeah. and So that's kind of nice to bring. Even something like a water bottle because then, you know, when they have water, they can take it with them. Last year, I was thinking myself, what can I bring? And I looked at my Chico bag and went, you know what? That might be a good idea. So I called the Chico company, and they loved the idea. And they said, well, how many do you need? And they sent me a box of Chico bags. So I gave them out. And what happened at the time was June 1st, Tanzania abolished any plastic bag. And I mean any plastic bag, Ziplocs, anything. There are no plastic bags anymore, and you don't get caught with them because there'll be a fine for you. So no more plastic. And so the timing was perfect because I was there in May to like the 2nd or 3rd of June. So giving out Chico bags was perfect for that. So that's a good thing. Bags are a good thing. That is the voice of Doreen Stokes. She lives here in Montana and plants trees all over the Northwest as well as Africa. She leads safari in Tanzania, and we've been talking about the cultures in East Africa. When we come back, we're going to talk about the animals, elephants and rhinos in particular. But Doreen, it's time for another song. I'm going to say Moon Dance. No particular reason, except it's a little bit romantic, and I just like the song. It reminds me of Costa Rica Beautiful. and the beach. And you're on your way to Costa Rica right now. I am. Doreen, I'd really like to talk to you now about something you and I are both passionate about, and that is elephants and rhinos. Well, if you've never seen an elephant in person, you're truly missing out on something. They are gentle giants. They are they're magnificent creatures, our largest land mammal. They're intelligent. They're just wonderful, wonderful animals. Oh, I have to get a little bit, you know, sad about things here. I mean, you just have to know this thing in order for you to do something about it. 
And some say we lose an elephant every 15 minutes. Some say 90 a day. Some say up to over 20,000 a year elephants die. There's been a lot of census done, but bottom line, what's going on is it's not good for them. There are now more elephants dying than there are elephants being born. So we are at the point of diminishing returns. And think about this. An elephant has a 22-month gestation period. Then it suckles its young for up to four years. Then it will rebreed, but only if it's not under stress. If it's under stress, it may not rebreed. So then you have another 22 months. And you're looking at close to seven years for one baby elephant. So a lot of times when an elephant gets poached, it's just not the mother with a young one nearby. It's also the baby inside of it. So this is what's going on, bottom line. The importance of the elephant is that they are what you call a keystone species. What happens to them happens to other animals eventually. They are mega gardeners, and they're really vital for the health of the ecosystem there. They're also called an umbrella species, and that's because so many other animals and plants depend on them. They disperse seed as they roam around. They make clearings and pathways for other animals. And most importantly is in the dry season, they find water. They find water where no one else can find water, and they dig it up. They dig a hole, and other animals can drink too. So basically, they're shaping the structure and the function of a savanna. Where they go, other animals will follow, and I mean down. If, if, they're, if they are poached into extinction, which they say could very well happen in the next 10 years. Elephants in the wild could become extinct if something isn't done more than what we're doing now. Of course, the problem there is poaching, poaching for ivory. Ivory is used in the Asian countries for some medicinals, but mostly it's jewelry, and it's just nonsensical things that are made out of ivory. When the economy is good in in Asian countries, then more people buy ivory because it is a point of status for them to have a piece of ivory in their house on a shelf. That is means a big deal to them. Things are starting to change. Things are starting to change and look better, like even in China. They've made great attempts to domestically curb their ivory consumption and to close down ivory carving shops. So domestically, I even think that they have banned trophy hunting China has. We did, under the Obama administration, we did ban trophy hunting. But now, under this administration, that has been lifted. You know, I can't, I have no explanation for that other than, and I just can't believe it's actually happened. So the money from this poaching goes to a lot of terrorist groups. And You know, you think, why should I care about the elephant? I've never seen one. I've never heard one. I've never touched one. Why should I care? Well, you should care because it is the fourth largest international crime. Wildlife crime, wildlife trading is arms. There's drugs. 
There is human trafficking, and then there's the traffic in wildlife, and ivory is at the very top of that list. And so the impacts of this can be political, they're social, they are economic, and, of course, the ecological. So politically, when this poaching is going on and it's so devastating to a country, that country is looked down upon because it other countries look at them like they are distrustful. You can't trust them. And it's hard for other countries, countries that want to help, that to deal with them, that they want to deal with them, that they think that their money is going to go where their money is, they say their money is going to go. Corrupt. They think they're corrupt. So economically, when that happens, and tourism will go down, tourism does go down in some countries because of this. And when tourism goes down, the GDP of the country goes down because that is a big deal in a lot of East African countries anyway. When that happens, the local people will get less interested in conservation because they will get less from it. So they'll become a little bit poorer and they'll be more into going out and getting meat where they shouldn't be getting meat instead of helping to conserve. So it goes down the line like that. You have a decline in species and not only where the elephant go by the wayside, other animals will go. Because the poaching actually isn't just the elephant. The world can relate to that more than they can to maybe all the giraffes and the lions and other animals that are also getting poached. But when there is a strain on tourism like this, then that affects the bottom line of any country. And even down to the small people who are subsistence living. So, of course, then the ecological problems are the destruction in the habitat. Because if, you, if the elephant goes, the savanna will not look the same. Like I said, there were keystone species and gardeners. They're the gardeners. So, you know, there's a lot of things that this can affect. And, of course, it does affect politically. It affects terrorism because the money is going to terrorists. Ivory now is increased in value three times. It's worth more than gold. So that money is used for very bad reasons. What needs to be done about that? There's an organization called CITES. It is the Center for International Trade in Endangered Species. 180 countries come together every three years and decide what is going to happen to the animals and the fauna in our world. They're a great organization. In 1989, because the 80s were really bad on the elephants, they put the kibosh on all ivory trade. That's it. Consequently, the elephant populations really started to come up. It was a wonderful thing. About nine years ago, I believe it was, they decided that there were two or three countries that would be allowed to sell off their ivory. And since then, it has been horrifying for the elephant and the populations have just been decimated. I read their last report. They had a meeting in 2019 and it is a lot of recommendations. They recommend, they recommend, they recommend, but they're not a law. Countries will abide by a ban, a total ban, but they don't have a way to govern that. They're a great organization, and they have a great purpose, but I think they missed the mark this time again, and I don't think the elephant has time for them, such a big organization with 180 countries, to miss the mark again. There's just no time. So there's... Um, Things that could be done, they need to have stronger protections at the local and um, international levels. 
So there could be more training for the guards, the guides, the rangers, more rapid response teams, just simple supplies for some of the rangers, like their food and their tents and their boots and their clothing and their ammo and their night vision goggles. I mean, their, their phones, all that stuff makes a big difference. And countries who are struggling, a lot of them don't have the money to do that, and that becomes an issue. I just have to say, if there's a billionaire out there that wants to be an earth hero, this is your time to step up for the elephant. It needs a lot of resources in the form of money. And there are people out there that know how to do things. And I think a great deal can be done. But you need to have the resources and the dedication. And there are a lot of groups that are dedicated. But, you know, you could put a little bit of money here and a little bit of money there. But I tell you, if there was a great deal of money and someone wanted to stop this, they could. Doreen, I just wanted to say that our mutual friend, Pratik Patal, is the founder of the African Wildlife Trust and he is on the ground in Tanzania. Right now he's in South Africa, and then after this he's going to be in Geneva, and he's going all over the world fighting for elephants. But he is also spending time on the ground with rangers and giving poachers the opportunity to switch sides, as you might say, before mm-hmm. you know That's it right. comes to gun interaction. Right. And he has been successful with a lot of that. But what he said to me eight years ago when I interviewed him in this very same room was that the rangers don't even have enough money for their mealy, which in Africa mm-hmm. we call mealy as uh, like corn Right. Porridge. What do we call it in Tanzania? It is. It's Mili. Mili. African Wildlife Trust is just one of many different organizations who are making a difference right now. If it's orphanages for baby elephants, when baby elephants are coming in, the number that Pratik told me about eight years ago was 35,000 elephants killed every year, 10,000 mm-hmm. alone in Tanzania. Right. And so the amount of orphaned elephants coming in. There's an opportunity if you're not a billionaire to go there and volunteer taking care of babies or planting trees or maybe you don't have money to travel overseas. Maybe you can affect globally by doing something locally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to start by saying when you think, can one person make a difference in this world? Pratik comes to my mind because he is astounding in the difference that he makes every day for wildlife in Tanzania, just and for the elephants and the rhinos. He's currently down in South Africa, and he's bringing, there's the kind of farm, some rhinos down there. He's bringing rhinos to other places to save the species. He's bringing some back up to the Ngorogoro Crater. He has got a project going on in New Zealand. And this is to save the species, and I think it's really, really important. He's a wonderful, wonderful person. Mm-hmm. So you can contribute to African Wildlife Trust, There's another organization in Kenya called David Sheldrick Elephant Orphanage. And if you just want to Google elephant orphanage in Kenya, it will pop up first thing. They are amazing. They have been working for decades and came up with the first solution for the milk that elephants can handle. You know, at first they had a really hard time keeping the babies alive. They do so much work out in the wild, and they have reintegrated elephants into Tsavo many, many, many times. And for $50 a year, you can contribute to them, and you will get so much back in the form of information and pictures and paintings. And every day, you can learn more about the baby that you have sponsored. So that's a great educational gift for classroom, for your kids' school, I gave my 88-year-old aunt one of those last year, and she loves looking at that every day, just loves it. So $50 a year, 
You can also, there's Tide for Tusks, which is another organization. But one thing I would do if you're going to contribute is I would check them out. If you can call them and find out, and they have to answer you, is how much of the money actually goes to the project and how much of the money goes to their costs. And you can tell. You don't want 70% of your money not going to the project. So they have to answer that question and pick one where most, a great deal of the money goes to their project. Beautiful. Yeah. Doreen, before we run out of time, can we talk about rhinos a little bit and what's going on with the rhinos as well? It's not just affecting elephants. Elephants are a keystone species, which means what happens to them is eventually going to happen to everybody else, too. Mm-hmm. Rhinos are in trouble. Leopards are in trouble. Lions are in trouble. And we've seen a decrease in the lions, the leopards, and the cheetahs, partially because of tiger bone wine, which is popular in China as well. And the tigers are being taken not from Africa. Tigers do not live in Africa, but from other parts of the world. But because we're running out of tigers... There's counterfeit tiger bone wine in the form of lion bones that are being called, you know, tiger bones and trickling down to other species. Particularly, I'd like to talk to you about the rhino right now. Well, I got to say that in 1984, there were rhinos everywhere. It was wonderful. I mean, everywhere you went down into the crater and you could look over and there'd be five rhinos and you could get close to them. Now, you're lucky if you see one rhino on safari. I'm sorry, you will see the big five, but you may not see a lot of rhinos. And that's just the way that life is now. And they have been hunted, of course, for their horn, that is keratin, its hair. It really does have no medicinal purpose at all. One thing that's helped me through life that my dad always taught me was everybody has a story and don't judge people. Don't judge. Just, you know, listen to their story and and get to know people for who they are and what their background has brought them to be. So that's that's one thing I would say. My mom was, she's always told me where there's a will, there's a way. So you find your passion and you want to help and you'll find a way. You'll find a way to help. And I guess be part of the solution and and a big point of advice. Beautiful. And... Then again, the small changes that you're able to make every year, if it's planting a tree every day on your birthday or uh, donating $50 to sponsor a baby elephant, those are all helpful. But again, even at a local level, you know, there's Mm -hmm. mud here in Missoula. There's free cycles. There's different organizations that are helping out our elephant, the grizzly bear. So Mm -hmm. I hope that whoever's listening is feeling a little bit more inspired to be part of the solution. I know that I am. And I thank you for that, Doreen. Every time I'm near you, I feel this spark of energy and passion to fight for what I believe in. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. And I really hope you come on safari with me. And I go early and I stay longer. So you're welcome to to do that with me too. It would be wonderful. That means the world, Doreen. And yeah, for the listener, that's a project that I've been hoping to do since I met Pratik and yourself in this room many, many years ago, was to go to Tanzania and interview people who are there right now. Thank you. Yes. Jambo Bibi, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world. I'd like to thank this week's guest, Doreen Stokes. Doreen has been traveling to Africa for a very long time, planting trees and guiding safaris in East Africa. She is one of the many people out there who's making a difference on planet Earth and fighting for the lives of endangered species. The Trail Less Traveled airs every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time. You can stream live online at Trail 
1033.com. You can find the show archive, pictures, and other entertaining factoids on the official website, traillesstraveled.net. My name's Mandela, your host, and I ask that if the show has ever transported you, please consider writing us a review to help this new genre of adventure radio. My adventure tip this week could help you if you're starting to feel like you're getting sick, specifically if you're starting to get a little tingle in a sore throat. Start immediately sucking on a few cloves that you can find in any spice market. You will be surprised how fast it can help soothe the throat and actually get rid of the infection. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week's adventure, please get outside and plant a tree. Plant a tree for yourself on your birthday. Plant a tree for someone else on their birthday. Get outside, plant a tree, and shred the gnar. Because as you know, trees don't plant themselves, and the gnar does not shred itself. Good day, mate. This is Joe coming to you from the Sunshine Coast in Eastern Australia. The Trail Less Travelled podcast is sponsored by Desert Green Hemp, family farmed, organically grown, tested and manufactured in Sisters, Oregon. Desert Green grows some of the finest genetics in the world using organic and biodynamic practices to provide the cleanest and most effective CBD. The rich volcanic mountain soils, dry climate and directly sourced mountain spring waters are what gives Desert Green uniquely pure and powerful CBD products. They also grow a variety of herbs and flowers on their farms that not only provide a direct source for some of their products, but also introduce beneficial bugs and pollinators to their land. Desert Green Hemp pride themselves on contributing to the regeneration of social, economic and environmental health on our planet. Visit DesertGreenHemp.com and remember to use the promo code MANDELA, M-A-N-D-E-L-A. This promo code will get you discounts and special offers. That promo code, Mandela, directly helps you and the future of Adventure Radio.